Thank you, Javon, Jamar. Beautiful, beautiful expression on this Mother's Day. And I don't think you could have chosen anything that fits more perfectly <clears throat> with what I'm going to share for the next few minutes with the congregation. <clears throat> While I'm talking to mothers today for the next few minutes, I'm praying that this message will have something to say to everyone, obviously. I'm going to ask you something, moms, and it may not be a comfortable thing for me to ask you to do, <clears throat> or a comfortable thing, comfortable thing for you to do. But if you were giving a rating as a mother to yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you give? Rating yourself as a mother on a scale of 1 to 10. You don't have to tell anybody else. You don't have to shout it out so you can be completely honest about it. In, um, in approaching this Mother's Day, I saw on social media where another pastor posted this, this question. He said, what's the most difficult part of being a mother? What's the hardest part? And you see the responses that came back, and some moms said regret, some said exhaustion, some said worry, some fear of failure. Uh, um, one mom said being the household fixer, that sense of helplessness. And another one said not enough time in the day. One mom responded like this. She said, I feel guilty at work for not being at home. I feel guilty at home for not being at work. I feel like I'm too strict, and then I feel like I'm too laid back. I feel like I don't volunteer enough, and then I feel like I volunteer too much. I feel like there's not enough time in the day, and, and then when I sit down to give myself time, I feel guilty for giving myself time. And out of this whole thing, a phrase emerges that I would guess that many of you mothers can relate to, and it's called this, mom guilt, mom guilt. And sometimes when mom guilt sets in, some really messy situations can take place, and that's exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 16, which is where we're going to turn to today for our text. Genesis chapter 16. I always encourage you to, to get your Bible, your device, to follow along. I think most of you know that in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, God comes to Abram, Abram, which is what uh, his name was before his name is changed to Abraham, and God tells him that he is going to give him, going to give Abram descendants, and the number of which will be, uh, will be greater than the number of stars in the sky or sands on, sand on the seashore. Well, time passes, and his wife Sarai, later to be named Sarah, has this Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. Now, though both Sarai and Hagar are going to become mothers, they find themselves in, a, in, a, a very, in the middle of a very messy situation, which we're going to read about. But from our reading, I'm going to ask us to try to find, I'm going to help you find five perspective checks, perspective checks that we can look at in our lives to check our perspective. And I'm talking about those times when things in life go awry. Or as we sometimes say today, um, our life seems to kind of go off the rails and we're not staying in the, in the, in the right place. So I'm going to propose today five ways that you, five things, either questions that you can ask yourself or statements that you can make to use as perspective checks. And I'm pulling this from this story of... Hagar, Sarai, and Abram. You might want to get a pen and paper and, and write some of these things down. Uh, 
when you check yourself by these perspectives, and when you come into that situation in your own life where you're needing to take a perspective check, things have gone awry, things have messed up a bit, you may find yourself then asking, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, is this, is this the right way to think? Am I seeing this clearly? Am I, is, is my vision cloudy? Is my perspective clear? Well, we find these five perspective checks here in Genesis 16. Let me read it for you, starting with verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, let's put a pause button right there. Before I get into these five perspectives, which I'm hoping you'll glean from this message, there is something significant that I need to say when you under, to understand this passage. Uh, it's just a little side road I'm taking for just a second. When you first start reading the book of Genesis, it can be disconcerting. Because here are all these spiritual heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and you look at them and then you look how they treat women. They engage in polygamy. They buy and sell their wives. Well, there's a Jewish scholar at Berkeley who is an expert in ancient Jewish literature. His name is Robert Alter. And in Mr. Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, he says there are two institutions present in the book of Genesis that were universal in ancient cultures. And those two institutions were this, polygamy and primogeniture. Polygamy, as you know, said a husband could have multiple wives. And primogeniture said the oldest son got everything. He got all the power. The oldest son got all the money. In other words, the oldest son basically ruled over everyone else in the family. And Mr. Alter points out that when you read the book of Genesis, there are two things that you should see in reading them. Unfortunately, not everybody does. But here's what he says. First of all, in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. That's what we need to see about it. Having multiple wives is an absolute disaster in most any way that you can look at it, socially, culturally, uh, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally. And the other thing, Mr. Alter says, that you should see when you read the book of Genesis is when it comes to this thing called primogeniture, though the culture said in every generation God favors the younger son over... uh, The culture said that the older son would be favored. What we see is in every generation, God favors the younger son, not the older one. He favors Abel instead of Cain. He favors Isaac instead of Ishmael. He favors Jacob, not Esau. And Alter says that you begin to realize that what the book of Genesis is doing, it's subverting, not supporting those ancient institutions at every turn. In other words, what I'm saying to you is the Bible is not condoning polygamy. It is mentioning that it existed in that day and time, as did primogeniture, but it does not condone it. 
So the lesson to us is simple. Be patient with the text when you read it. And consider the possibility that it might not be teaching you what you think it's teaching you, but it is certainly teaching you something of an eternal value, an eternal nature. Now let me get back on track here, back to our text and our five perspective checks. Uh, we read it. Sarai, Abram's wife, had gone. Abraham's wife had Abram's wife had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. I just want to get this, get this all back in your mind. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Here is perspective check number one. You cannot build perfection. You cannot build perfection. Now, obviously, I'm not a mom. I have a mom. I talked to her this morning. I'm married to a mom. I talked to her this morning. I've talked with hundreds of you throughout the years enough to realize that moms tend to have this overwhelming sense of the need to be perfect. They've just got to have it perfect. They do not want to fail at being a mom in any way. And I, even when I asked you a moment ago to rate yourself, I would venture to guess that not one of you gave yourself a 10. I bet not one of you gave yourself a 10. Now, some of you might have given yourself a 9 thinking, well, I'm not perfect, but I should be. I should be a 10. And there is this overwhelming sense that you want to be perfect. Two words I want you to consider, approved and achievement. These are things we all seek for in life. We all want to be approved. We all want to find achievement. It's a, it is a um, natural driving force within most of us most of the time. Sarai is going through this kind of a moment where she wants to find perfection. She wants to do it right. And God had told her husband, Abram, that they would have children. But here's what happened. She got tired of waiting. And the part of our text here that I want you to underline or circle or highlight on your device or whatever, however you do it is what Sarai says at the end of verse 2 when she said this, I can build a family. I can build a family. She was so burdened by needing to have a family that she thought to herself, I'm tired of waiting on God. I can find perfection in this. I can do this on my own. Therefore, I will build a family. Now, before we get too hard on dear sister Sarai, before we judge her, let's understand her perspective. Because she was barren. She was barren. Could not have ch children. Now, being barren, is, it's a big deal today. It's a big concern for many, some in our fellowship. For those who find themselves in that condition, I know it's a very painful thing to see others around you having children when you cannot seem to be able to bear a child. And that's what Sarai was going through, this valley of barrenness and all the stuff that goes with it you got to understand 
though, that particularly in the time of the Bible, barrenness culturally carried even um, possibly much more heaviness and intensity than it does today. Because if you were barren in the time of the Bible, it basically meant that you were cursed, that the hand of God, the hand of God's blessing was not on you. For a woman in that day, one of the most significant responsibilities was to give her husband a lineage, a legacy for him to pass down to his heirs. That was a responsibility. And Sarai was feeling the pressure of not being able to do that for her husband, Abram. She wasn't able to be the perfect spouse because she wanted to be the perfect mother. and She couldn't. She wasn't finding approval, and she certainly wasn't finding achievement. So moms, please hear from me this morning. God does not require perfection. He requires submission. God does not require perfection. Hold on. He requires submission. Oh, how I wish I could liberate you this morning and tell you, you don't have to be the perfect mother. There has never been one before you. There will never be one after you, and you are not required to be the one and only. I have said it before to this congregation. I'll say it again this morning. I don't know anyone who gets an A in parenting. I've yet to meet the first person who gets an A in parenting. So back to my statement that I want to maybe say a little more clearly. You don't have to be the perfect mother. You simply have to be submitted to the perfect father. And thankfully, there is a perfect father who is more than ready to lead you, to guide you, to give you wisdom, give you direction, to comfort you, and to be your helper. Because there's no such thing as a perfect mom. And frankly, the only way for you to reconcile this is to come to that place of understanding this. God is enough. God is enough. He's enough to sustain you. He's enough to take care of you. He's enough to be what you need Him to be at that moment when you need Him to be. He lives within you by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. God is enough. Let me move on in the text. Genesis 16, verse 4. So he, speaking of Abram, slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. This is his wife who brought, okay, you got it. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And can't you imagine Abram going, whoa, wait, wait a minute. What happened here? Wasn't this your idea? Verse 6, your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Perspective check number two. I'm asking you to put this on the list of things that you look at, consider, say to yourself when life goes off the rails for you. Perspective check number two. Where are you throwing your pain? Where are you throwing your pain? Because we all encounter pain. 
We all encounter disappointments. We all encounter situations in our lives where we thought, we thought God was going to do it a different way. We had kind of preconceived our idea. We designed in our head the way this was going to play out. This is how God's going to do it. And when it doesn't happen that way or happen in the timing that we thought, then here comes the pain and here comes the disappointment. And that's what drove Sarai to this point. She thought God was going to answer his promise to her husband Abram quickly. And when it didn't happen quickly, she uttered the words, okay, I can build a family. And when she realized that the family that she had planned to build did not turn out the way she had expected, she began to cast the blame on Abram. She cast the blame on Hagar. She cast the blame on any and everybody she could find, it appeared. And isn't that extremely easy for all of us to do? When we're disappointed, when things aren't right, we've got to find some place to put the blame. We throw the blame on others for the things that go awry in our lives. And I, I honestly believe Sarai's intentions were good. I do. I think she wanted to have a legacy. and She wanted to serve her husband in that regard. She wanted to have purpose. But she was doing it in a manner which was being harmful to those around her. So we find out, as we just read, Hagar fled. Well, what happened to her? Well, here's verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And this angel of the Lord said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going is what the angel said to Hagar. Perspective check number three. You are not as lost as you think you are. Put that on the list of things you're going to check yourself with. You are not as lost as you think you are. I have taken particular note in my years of observing moms all around me that so often many of them feel alone. They feel alone. And it doesn't um, necessarily matter how many people are all around them, who's around them, including their husbands. And guys, if you're like me, don't we have a hard time understanding why they feel alone when we're right there with them? <laughs> we're right there. And yet they can still come out and say, I feel alone. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had that experience. It's true. But when you probe into the mind and heart of many moms, and so what, what, what is this? You will often encounter them expressing this, this feeling coming from, it, from them, and then they may say it like this, they feel unseen. They feel invisible. Husbands go to work. They're seen by their boss. They're seen by their coworkers. They're seen by whoever they work with, board of directors, well, whoever they're with. But moms, particularly stay-at-home moms, they don't get feedback. They don't, they don't get congratulations. They don't get a pat on the back. They don't even get critiques. And that need in them to be seen, to be visible, can build up and mound up and cause them to begin to feel lost and alone. And that's exactly where Hagar was. But now think about this. Hagar was pregnant with something. She found herself in the desert place. 
And that's where the angel of the Lord found her, in the desert. Now, what does desert represent? A desert represents a lonely place, a dry place, where you're all alone and you're thirsty for something. And by the way, the Bible goes on to say that the angel found her on the road to Shur, S-H-U-R. You know what Shur means in, in Hebrew? It means wall. So what we see is not only was Hagar in a desert, dry, lonely, thirsty place, but she also had hit a wall. She didn't know where to go from here. She's pregnant with something. She knows that God has something for her, doesn't know what it is. But the most encouraging thing about this passage is when we discover the angel of the Lord found her. She didn't have to find him. God sought her out. God saw her. And not only did he find her, not only did he see her, but he called her by name. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, or Hagar, Hagar, slave girl. Do you happen to know what Hagar means? It means flight. It means stranger. It means immigrant. So she had taken flight and had run away, fled her home. And this angel of the Lord finds her in the desert and calls her by name, Hagar, which also means that the angel is calling her not only by her name, but by her situation. I know you've taken flight. I know you feel like a stranger, but I'm here for you. I see you, and I will walk you through this. The more I talk to mothers and grandmothers, the more I see this burden that they carry for their children, for, for their grandkids. And in many, many cases, it's easy to see how it can um, completely weigh them down. I see this regularly. But moms, I want to say something to you that I, I really hope will resonate deep within your heart. And I pray that you can come to the point of confidence and rest in this fact, and it's this. God loves your kids more than you do. He loves them more than you do. Never, never forget it was God who created your children. Never, never forget, it was the Lord who knit them in your womb carefully, strategically, intricately. He formed and shaped them. Even that child who is wired completely different than you are. I bet there's more than a few parents who go, I don't know where this kid came from. I don't even understand them. I don't understand how they think. I don't understand how they process. Wired completely different than you are. And yes, even that one that you have no idea what to do with. But when you fully rest in the truth that God loves your children more than you do, it is then that it becomes much easier to give your child completely to God. Have you really ever done that? Maybe you brought them for dedication. But now that you're at this point of the journey with them, have you really said, God, again, they are yours. They're completely yours. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew, Matthew 19. The people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. 
And I just have a sense in my heart this morning that it's entirely possible that God may be speaking those words to a worried mom this morning. Let the children come to me. That might be what he's saying to you. And even to the worried mom of grown children where possibly those kids are not even, not even living for God today and you, you worry day and night and you have sleepless nights because the, the Lord may be saying to you this morning, let them come to me. Cast your cares on me. Let me take care of your kids. How do I do that, Pastor Dan? Well, I simply point you to John 14, 16 where Jesus says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another advocate to help you. You have the helper, the great blessed helper, the Holy Spirit who dwells within. That's who is there to help you. Let me move on in the text. Uh, verse 8. I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, was the answer Hagar gave when the angel asked her, where have you come from? Where are you going? Hagar said, I'm running. I'm running. Now, I stop here to draw out the fact that before Hagar could experience God in a new way, she's about to have an encounter. And before that encounter could take place and have God speak to her, she had to acknowledge what she was running from. It was The angel required it. Really, the Lord required it through the angel. She had to acknowledge what she was running from. She had to acknowledge the pain. She had to acknowledge the thing that was burdening her. That was the challenge of the angel. Where, where have you come from? And where are you going? She had to speak it out. Genesis 16, 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Frankly, when I read the story, I don't, I don't like to read that part. It, it, everything about it seems unfair, wrong. Like That's not what the angel should have said. In my best effort to put myself in Hagar's shoes... Here's what I'm seeing. I see that she's running. She's been mistreated. She's a single mom. She doesn't have a loving husband. She's been taken advantage of. She's been pushed into the desert to a, a dry and lonely place and a thirsty place. And she's looking for some validation and, and approval. And yet what she gets from the angel, with that being her circumstances and that being what's flooding her heart and mind, she gets from the Lord through the angel, go back. What? Go back. Are you kidding me? Have you, have you actually been watching my situation? Have you really seen my predicament? Well, here's perspective check number four. It is through your burden that you will find blessing. It is through your burden that you will find blessing. God would say to Hagar, I know. I know it's burdensome. I know it's hard. But I'm calling you to go back to the very thing that has burdened you. Because I'm calling you to give birth to what I placed inside of you. Not in a dry and lonely place, but back in your burden. I can only imagine how burdensome it can feel to be a mom, just as I know how it can feel to be a dad. But God may be saying to you today, and listen to me carefully, go back to the burden of your marriage. Go back to the burden of that dream that you've lost that you've thought is gone forever. Go back to the burden of working for that boss who's hard to work for. Don't run from it. Go back to it because it will be through the burden that you're going to give birth. 
through the burden that you're going to give birth. Yeah, it takes birth. It takes pain to give birth to something, but you have to go back to that burden in order to make that, that, that happen. With that said, please hear me when I also say, if you are a woman in an abusive relationship, do not go back. Get help and get help immediately. Do not, please do not misconstrue this message in any way to indicate that I'm saying that you should go back into an abusive relationship because I don't believe you should do so and I want you to be safe. The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, not only to go back to her mistress, but to submit to her. The Hebrew word for submit is ana, ana. And ana means or submit, it means to be humbled, to be oppressed, to be afflicted. God appears to be saying, I know it's hard. I know it's burdensome. I know it's difficult at times. I know you, you are unseen, but I want you to go back. And I find verse 10 extremely interesting. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Did you notice the angel did not end with the burden? The angel says, says, oh, oh, oh and by the way, oh, oh, and one more thing. I'm not going to end with the burden. I know I told you to go back to your burden, but that's not the end of the story. That won't be the end of your story. Because when you go back to the burden, that's when I'm going to bring you a blessing. And your blessing is going to be birthed through your burden. Verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Speaking of Hagar. This is the name she gave to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have now seen the one who who sees me. That is why, verse 14, that is why the well was called Beer the High Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Berid. Perspective check number five is extremely simplistic and yet it's profound. It is this. Is your last perspective check for the morning. God sees you. God sees you. Coming to this point of this passage is interesting. Hagar has gone through a mess, and oh, what a mess. She's gone through hell. She's fled. She's in a dry and lonely desert. We just talked about how the angel of the Lord found her and sought her out. But at the end of the day, at the end of all of that, what did Hagar have to say about the whole thing? She said this, I have now seen the God who sees me. She seems to realize that God really saw her all along, though she's just now seeing it for the first time. God saw her. He was working in her. He was working through her. He was working for her, and she finally saw that. But the place where the angel found Hagar, Beer the Hiroi, is translated, it's interesting, from Hebrew to English like this. This, that place where, he, where the angel found her, it's the well of the living one who sees me. Isn't that interesting? 
the well of the living one who sees me. Now I ask you, what are the chances that Hagar, on the run, in a desert, dry, and lonely place, and the very place that she just happens, she's running and, 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 and fleeing and getting away, and she's, I can imagine her out of breath, and she's, finally she just stops at this place. And the place she happened to stop was Beer Lahiroi, the well of the living one who sees me. And that is the place where God came through his angel and found her. Mom, you may be saying within the quiet of your own heart, I wish God would find me. I sure wish God would see me. Well, then let me just say this to you today. Would you then please consider this sermon, this message as God saying to you, I see you. I see you. Maybe the place where you are right now is your beer, Lahiroi. Maybe you're in a desert. Maybe you're in a lonely place. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're running from something, and you're in a place of agony and loneliness and defeat, well, then please consider this moment right where you are, right with the place where you are, where God is saying to you, I see you. And remember this, most often we have our deepest and most intimate experience with God when He finds us in our desert. That is the testimony I hear over and over and over. And for Hagar, it was enough for her to simply know that God saw her. That's all she needed. And I'm praying the same will be true for you today. To be reminded, to receive the truth in your heart that God sees you. I close this message with a verse and an analogy which I hope will bring all of these thoughts together in this message the message which I have entitled, It's All About Perspective. The musicians and singers want to come. I need just a couple more minutes. Here's the verse I want to bring you as I close. 1 John 3, verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn or accuse would be what the Greek would say. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. Let me read it one more time. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us or accuse us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. So mom, here's what I would say. When your thoughts and your emotions and your intelligence all come around to condemn you and to accuse you. And when they come to afflict you and to tell you that you're not good enough and that you're not a good enough mom and that you work too much and that you volunteer too much and you do too much of this and not enough of that, please remember this verse that I've just read from 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Remember this when what you're hearing inwardly is not correct. When the sound's coming to you, when the accusation's coming in, I want you to remember this verse. Because you know what? God is greater than your heart. God is greater than our emotions. He is greater than our intelligence. He's greater than our thoughts. He's greater than the accusations which are coming to us from the enemy. And dear one, you are equipped through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you to rise above all of those things and declare that you are a child of God and you belong to Him and He sees you. That is the correct perspective. 
That's the verse I wanted you to hang on to. Here's the analogy. You're going to think it's a little inappropriate for Mother's Day, but it so fits. It's a sports analogy, ladies. I bring it with somewhat of an apology. I've been particularly fascinated with the introduction the last few years of the instant replay, particularly in football, and how they have come to use it in making calls on plays that have been challenged by the opposing side. So you know how it works. You've seen it many times. A play happens on the field. The official makes a certain call about that play. And the other coach pulls out his red flag and throws it down to challenge the call made by the official. What that coach is saying is, I disagree with the call that was made. And I disagree with the perspective of the official on the field who made that call. I believe that the official saw it from the wrong perspective. But in, And if he could see it from the right perspective, then he would agree with me that he's wrong. That's what that coach is, is saying. So the officials go over to the camera and they stick their head in whatever that thing is. And, and, and they put their headphones on and they check it out. And what are they doing? They're slowing the tape way down and looking at it from several different angles, which then gives them the opportunity to discover if their perspective was right or if their perspective was wrong. Now, sometimes they'll come back to say, the official's call on that play stands as it is, second down, and they move on. But I just happen to really enjoy it a bit more when the official walks back out on the field, particularly if the change of the call favors my team. And the official turns on his microphone and he says, the ruling on the field is overturned. Well, they are essentially saying this. The perspective we saw in the field wasn't the right perspective. And I think what you and I have to begin to do, moms, dads, all of us, in that moment when our hearts condemn us, <laughs> in that moment when the play is executed that our, our emotions condemn us, accuse us, when our thoughts condemn and accuse us, when everything comes against us and accusations surge within us, we have got to learn to throw down our red flag on the field and say, hold on, this needs to be looked at from a different perspective. I don't believe the accusations. I don't believe the call that was made. And I'm challenged the call and asking that it be examined from a different perspective. God, I'm sending this up to the booth, and I'm asking you to check it out. And I want to slow down the tape, God. I, I want to slow down my life and look at this thing from a different perspective. And God, I'm asking you to come back, and you make the final call on this, and you tell me what the truth is about what has taken place. And I happen to think that when you get the perspective of God, what you'll find is that the marriage that you thought was over and done with, God will come back and declare that the ruling on the field is overturned. That marriage is not over. That when you think you're not a great mother, God will share with you a piece of His perspective which will show you that the, the ruling on the field was not correct. It's not right. And with God's help, you are going to get through this. And you will raise healthy kids who will, who will live for God and serve Him. And you will survive this desert moment in your life. When you look from the perspective of God, you will find that the ruling on the field 
is overturned. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, I just pray today that your grace will be upon all who are watching this service today. I pray for moms. I pray for moms who are struggling for whatever reason, whatever season in life they're going through, that you will give them the grace to trust you even more with their children. They will release their kids once again to you. And that you will also give them the assurance in their heart that you see them. They are not unseen. They are not invisible. But they are in the, in, in the, in the apple of your eye. So I commit our moms to you, even as I commit the church to you, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.